And if you want to open your Bibles to, how about 1 John? <laughs> actually, I'm going to start in, we're actually in chapter 5, but we'll start in chapter 2 uh, briefly. So. <laughs> I don't want to leave, right? I decided to re-preach. <laughs> no, not really. Okay, we there? So we're right coming down to the last portion of John's letter. So we're, it's time for him to remind his readers why he wrote. John likes to tell you at the end why he's writing. At least he always seems to do that. His gospel does that. He has a lot to say. He's covered a lot of ground. He spent a lot of time explaining what a real, a real Christian is. Remember, some had abandoned the faith and gone and joined a cult. And that's why he's writing the church of those who are faithful. And the believers under his care wanted to know. They wanted to know what distinguishes a real Christian from a, a professor or a, a beer professor. Somebody that just says they're a Christian. And remarkably, you know, you can't just tell by looking at everybody if they're a Christian. <laughs> it's hard to tell. A Christian is not somebody that has a halo. I don't have a halo. I have a squeak behind me. <laughs> a Christian is not luminescent in a dark room. Oh good, there's somebody saved here. I can read my book by their light. No, it's not, it's not anything like that. It's not going to church. That doesn't make you a Christian. Buildings don't save. As much as we'd like to have one. <laughs> it's not wearing a cross that makes you a Christian. People wear crosses for all kinds of reasons. It's a fashion statement for some people. For believers, of course, it's infinitely precious. It represents something wonderful. But um, for some people, it's superstitious. They think it's kind of a protection or something like that, a good luck charm, things like that. So wearing a cross in itself doesn't make you a Christian or even identify you as a Christian. Um, but what is a Christian? Well, John has spent most of the letter answering that question. And I've gone through it like 20 times, the, the things he said. So I won't do that again. Read the book for yourself. But he has explained the most important distinguishing characteristics. And when John brings up those who left the church for a cult, he says that they could only have done that if they were not true Christians. So one of the signs of being a Christian is you stay with Christ, right? You don't go chasing off after other things. That's one thing. First um, John chapter 2, verse 19, he said, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. Even though they probably said all the right things and been part of fellowships and stuff going on for a long time, they, I think the people were shocked that some of these guys left and people left to go to this cult. But he says here, they went out from us because they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. So one thing a Christian will never do is leave Jesus, uh, the biblical Jesus, right? Belonging to Jesus is not a label, it's not an identity, it's not a profession we make. It's, he, uh, you, you actually believe in him, you actually put your trust in him. So John gave one reason for writing his letter there in chapter 2 verse 19. Look at verse 20. But you, now he's contrasting them with the, those that left, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So a true Christian knows the truth, not because he's wise or good or better than other people, but because he has an anointing from God. So it's not from us, it's God acting 
in us. We mentioned when we were in chapter 2 that in the Bible the idea of anointing is deeply tied to the presence of the Holy Spirit. So that's what he's talking about. When you are a believer the Holy Spirit resides in you and you have this presence of God actually within you. And John says the Spirit, God's Spirit abides in us. So when we hear the truth about Jesus, this Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth confirms that in us. So he's awakening our hearts and as we hear it, he says that's true and we believe it. He, he bends our hearts and minds to the direction of that truth that we hear and we believe it. That's what makes us different from people that don't believe it. God does this work in us. It's an amazing thing. It's a miracle. It actually is a miracle. If you want to see a miracle, look around. There's several sitting near you. <laughs> um, so we believe it. We know it's true. But even a true Christian can be deceived. It's possible for that to happen and, and false teachers can lure them off to do uh, foolish things or get wrong ideas in their head or things like that. So John reminds them that the Spirit confirms the gospel when they heard it, when they first heard it, the gospel about the true Jesus. So verse 26 of chapter 2, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So that's what the cult guys are doing and false teachers are all over the place today. As for you, verse 27, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, it's the Spirit, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in him. So a Christian has this internal witness to the truth about Jesus, and as the Spirit abides in us, he's confirming that and he's guiding us in the right way we should go. So we don't want to be deceived. We want to listen to the Spirit as He tells us, confirms in our hearts the truth we originally heard. And if somebody comes along and says, no, that's not really the gospel. You need this too. Or it's over here. Or that kind of thing. The Spirit will tell you, no, it's not there. Don't go. Right? So don't go wandering off. So now last week we looked at the, some foundational truths because John is wrapping up the letters. So now you can go to chapter 5. And we focused on ways that God testified regarding his son. We saw the testimony of God when he actually spoke at Jesus' baptism. We talked about that last time. And then God spoke again at the Passion Week when Jesus was just days before he was to be crucified. God literally spoke out of heaven and a bunch of people heard it. Um, there were also miracles at the cross we talked about. Signs from God. The, the darkness that came over the whole land at noontime. You know, while Jesus was on the cross. And then the great earthquake that happened. And all of that. Uh, the veil of the temple being torn in two. Uh, that, what good timing to have the veil of the temple tear in, two, tear in two, which represents your access to God. And when Jesus died on the cross for us, that veil was torn. That, what? That's a strange coincidence. Or it's a message, right? It was a divine message. So all of that. God testified in numerous and unmistakable ways to his son. So what's the point of God's testimony? Well, the simplest, most basic truth he wants you to know is in 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And let me read that for you. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Verse 12, he who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. Now you can ask all the questions you want about other religions and what God thinks about this or that. This is the truth. So eternal life is in his son and it's only in his son. 
And if you don't have the son, you don't have that life. Because he's the only one that, it's not because Christians are better and we're right and you're wrong. It's not that kind of thing. It's, he's the only savior there is. It's that simple. And you've got to embrace him to have the salvation that he brought into the world. It's just that simple. And all we are are beggars telling other beggars where to find the bread. Because it was, it was shown to us. So we know where it is. And it's him. So it's all about eternal life here. Why is eternal life important? Well, you know, just in sharing our prayer request today, death is coming. It's coming for all of us, eventually. You and I only have so many years on this earth. And after that, your spirit, your essence, your conscious essence, the real you, will leave your body behind. And your body will just be nothing. It'll be a, a shell. We call that death. And death is the separation of the body and the spirit. Death is a separation. That's really what it is. Where will it go? Where will that essence of you go? Where will the, the real you, the spirit, go? That's the question. And there's only two possible places that your spirit will land. There's two destinations. There's not a halfway destination. Well, there's there and there's there, but what about there? No, there's no there. It's there or there. It goes in two, two ways. And we often speak about it in terms of heaven and hell, or bliss, or torment, or joy, or fire. I mean, there's a lot of ways to describe it. The main idea, though, between, between those two destinations, the main idea is with God and without God. That's the main idea. Whatever that experience is going to be, one is going to be with God and the other is going to be without God. Most people do not regard God as worthy of their love and attention. We were made for God. We were made for Him. We were created by Him for Him. To love him, to worship him, to be devoted to him. But as you know, man is estranged from God. There's been a horrible break in the relationship because of us on our part. So by nature and by choice, human beings are not inclined toward the real living God. And people don't give God what he deserves at all. But here in this world, we live in an amazing world, a world of this life is a world of contradictions. I mean, amazing contradictions. It's, it's, it's bizarrely wonderful and horrible all at the same time. Right? We humans, we find ourselves in a good world that's a mess. It's a, it's a good world that's under a curse. That's what the Bible says. It's not accidentally a mess. The world has been cursed. There's so, so we look at the good side. There's beauty and, and joy and love and friendship and the excitement of discovery and exploration and just music and there's just so many great things about the world. There's just wonderful things. And there's decay and disorder and conflict and hatred and corruption and broken lives and sometimes extreme suffering. Extreme suffering. So much good remains and so much has gone horribly wrong. And the Bible tells you exactly why. Now listen, before I was a Christian, I wanted to know why the world was the way it was. And I looked everywhere. 
There was only one place that actually explained why the world is the way it is. And that's the Bible. That's the only place. And I still, I, you know, I'm totally open to hearing other views just out of curiosity because I know whom I belong to. But just out of curiosity, I'd love to hear a good explanation for why the world is wonderful and horrible at the same time. And nobody offers that explanation. There's nothing. There's no philosophy, view, worldview, religion that, that in any way approaches the Bible's clarity in explaining the world we live in. So it's, uh, it's a wonderful book to me. But from the first day of human existence, and our first day in existence was in a perfectly harmonious world, a beautiful world, a world without problems. The creator of all of that told human beings who were the highest creation because we're made in his image, that's why we're so amazing and have such great potential. He said, obey me. He said, if you don't obey me, you will die. And they disobeyed. They disobeyed. And they were sent away from God's presence, kicked out of paradise. Their bodies began that slow decline towards death. Nature itself became hostile. The order of the world, the world's sort of spinning down, nature's spinning down. Even science says that, you know, there's a law of thermodynamics, energy gets used and it's never can be used, it gets lost. Every time energy is expended, some of it gets lost. Everything's spinning down. Their bodies decayed in this slow process of decline leading to death. So that's where death was. Death, there's, death means separation. So they physically started to die and ultimately they did die. Their body would be separated from their spirit. But there's another kind of separation. We are a spirit-body unity. That's how human beings were made. We're special. That's why we have these wonderful capacities. We have a spirit. But when you sin against God, even if you're still in your body, you're separated from God. That's, that's spiritual death. So there's physical death. We know what that is. But there's spiritual death when you're separated from God. You're not, you don't belong to Him. You don't want to belong to Him. So there's two aspects, the spiritual and the physical. And since man fell, since the first human beings fell, we are spiritually separated from God. We're born spiritually separated from God. We are descendants. How does C.S. Lewis put it in the Narnia books? We're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, right? We're born that way. So we have to be reconciled to God. That's what has to happen. That's why we need a, a new birth, a, a spiritual life. And that spiritual life is granted to us by God. John talks a lot in 1 John about being born of God. And that's what the mark is of a true Christian. They're born of God. We need a new birth. We need to be made spiritually alive. We need to be restored to God in a relationship with Him. And that can happen right now, today. So the new birth is the clearest sign of reconciliation. If you're reconciled to God now, if you're reconciled to God now, then, when physical death comes, you're done, with, you're done with death. The only thing that'll be on the other side of that physical death is life, eternal life, a glorious life, with God. That's the whole point of, the, that's the whole point of what the Bible's telling you. If you leave this life unreconciled to God, you will experience what the Bible calls a second death. A second death. There's two destinations. It's eternal life 
or the second death. The second death is a phrase we find in another book by the Apostle John. It's the last book in the Bible. It's the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what we learn there is that the second death is in fact hell. That's what, what we call hell. That's the second death. That's where you go. Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 refers to the time after the great judgment, the great judgment before God. It says, then death and Hades were thrown, death and Hades, Hades is where the spirits that don't know God are kept until the great judgment. They were thrown into the lake of fire and it says flat out, this is the second death. Okay, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Then verse 15, Revelation 20:15. if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that's where the idea of hell comes from. I mean, it's, it couldn't be any clearer than that. So the second death is a final separation from God. So we're separated from God in this life. We have an opportunity to be reconciled to him. But when you die unreconciled, there's a final separation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, in contrast, writing to believers, John says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. That sounds like good news to me. I want to know what that's all about. Overcome is the word we already saw in 1 John chapter 4 verse 4 where it says you are from God little children and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There's the spirit again we're talking about. The new birth. It's the spirit in us. He who is in you. He gives us the new birth. He resides in us. He guides us into truth. He protects us. He looks over us. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. What a passage. So friends, believers in Jesus will have no fear of the second death. We shouldn't have any fear of that at all. Now I spent a lot of time away from 1 John, okay? So let's go back to 1 John chapter 5. So let me read again um, when we're talking about eternal life, verse 11 and 12 of chapter 5. Verse 13 is actually our verse for today. So we're, getting there. we're almost there. Verse 11, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So the difference between life and death is having the... Thank you, good. Say, wearing my cross, going to church. No, that's not it. It's having the Son, right? He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So the difference is belonging to the Son. Now, can you know that you have the Son? Can you know that? And that leads us right to our text today, verse 13. It is and has been, verse 13, a great source of comfort for believers ever since John wrote 1 John for 2,000 years. 
Here it is. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing this book so you'll know. That's, that's what it's about. He's not writing to scare them. He's writing to take away their fear. Now maybe some of them, some of them were worried because of those other people that left, right? People, you guys were part of our church and they left and they joined a cult. They left the faith. What about me? What if I do that? He, what he's saying to them is that won't happen to you. That will not happen to you. I'm, I'm sure it won't happen to you. That's what he's saying. We can know and we should know that we have eternal life because of his son. Not because of us, but because of his son. I hope you know that if you have humbly acknowledged to God that you are a sinner and are truly unworthy to be God's child, if you understand that, and if you have understood that God the Son came to earth as a human being to die in your place, to die for your sins. If you understand that, and if you've put your trust in Him to save you, to be your sacrifice, and you have offered to Him your imperfect self. Don't offer Him your perfect self. He won't take it. <laughs> offer Him your imperfect self, confessing that He is your Lord and God then you're saved. Period. That's it. You're saved. Eternal life belongs to you. Nobody can take it away. It's by simple faith in Jesus that our sinless Redeemer, God the Son, saves us. Verse 12 again. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Now, just to kind of elaborate a little bit, I want you to think about two words security and assurance. Security and assurance. Those are two words, right? We hear them a lot in Christian circles. One of those words represents a fact and the other word represents, we'll call it a feeling. Which word is a fact? Security. Security is a fact. You may have assurance as a Christian in other words, I'm sure that I'm saved. You should have that as a Christian, but not all Christians do. But you do have security if you're a Christian. Because feelings kind of ebb and flow sometimes, right? Or things get in our heads and mess with us and all kinds of things. You, you should have assurance, but assurance is a feeling. The fact is that in Christ, if you've gone through that process I just described, which is super simple, putting your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then it's a fact that you're secure. You are secure, whether you feel it all the time or not. So John is writing his brothers and sisters in Christ that they may be certain of the fact, and he's hoping that they will experience the feeling of assurance. But he's assuring them about the fact of it. Security does not rest on feelings. Security does not rest on experiences. Security is what God has done for you. That means you can be secure in Christ and not feel it the way you should feel it. You should, but we, you might not. And that's not going to take away your security. I can think of a no number of reasons why Christians don't feel secure, why they don't have assurance. 
And I started thinking about a lot of conversations I've had over the years. You know, I've been in this ministry thing for a long time, right? Over 30 years. So I've had a lot of conversations about this. Several things kind of come up fairly regularly. So sometimes it's your religious upbringing. You were taught in some church environment that you can lose your salvation. There are churches that teach that. Now some of those churches say it's hard to lose it. Basically you have to deny Christ. But you, if you do that you're going to lose it. Others say you can lose it really easily. If you, if you sin, bad choices you make, you've lost it. And you'd better get it back. And you can lose your salvation and gain your salvation back multiple times, in and out, all over the place. You need to get saved often. Now those that say you need to get saved often and in and out and this and that and up and down and you can lose your salvation and all that, that's not Orthodox Christianity. That's something else. That's another faith. There's, there's, that's really wrong. Catholicism built a whole system of, um, if you were raised Catholic, you probably know, mortal sins and venial sins. Venial sins are easily forgiven. They're not a big deal. Mortal sins, and there's a long list of mortal sins. That sends you to hell. That, that's, you've lost your salvation. And until you go through a process of repentance and restoration, you can't be saved. You're gonna, you lose your salvation, which in their system you, you get your salvation when you're baptized as a baby and then as you receive grace through the church you'll build on that but if you commit a mortal sin you've lost it all and a mortal sin is a lot of things but they do say there's this process you can go through to, to restore that's why for many many centuries if you were Catholic and you committed suicide you could not be buried in sacred ground because you can't repent from that but that's a mortal sin now they have sort of a service they'll do and hope it comes out okay later or something kind of a thing. You know, everything's sort of softened, but, but, um, but that's just not biblical. It's not a biblical, mortal and venial sins, somebody made that up. It doesn't say that in the Bible. Now other people don't have assurance because they don't feel like their story of coming to faith matches the pattern of other Christians they know. And I've heard this a lot. Maybe you never went forward in a church and answered an altar call and wept at the altar and the preacher prayed over you. And in some churches, that's how people come to Christ, right? And I've, well, I've never done that. Well, you better do it. <laughs> Just to make sure, you know. I mean, that's how everybody else around here got saved. So, yeah, well, I didn't, I didn't yeah. You know, they came down the aisle is the expression. Maybe you never said the sinner's prayer with a tract. Now, can you get saved doing that? Of course you can. But what if it didn't happen that way? But everybody you know got saved that way. Or in your circles, everybody got saved that way. And you think, well, I never did that. Say, well, here's a track. <laughs> Maybe you don't have a date you can point to. Boy, you missed Sunday school this morning in the adult class. There was a great conversation about this very thing. You brought it. You started it. Purple lady. You started it was a truly, it was a very edifying conversation and uh, really, really wonderful. But you know the thing, um, my spiritual birthday is July 16th, what's yours? <laughs> my what? <laughs> uh, I don't know, I don't know. Well, here, here's a track, you better find out. You know. <laughs> Are you sure you're saved? That's the, I've seen that conversation, I've actually seen that conversation happen. And as a person who doesn't have one, I'm like you, I don't have one either. <laughs> so, um, you know, it says the, the Father draws us to Christ. My draw was real long. 
So it was over years, I think, actually. And I don't know when in that process I passed from death to life. I don't know. But I know it happened because I love the Son of God. And I ain't leaving. So um, it does happen. So things like that. And so everybody's got a spiritual birthday and I don't have one. And maybe I'm not saying. People really do feel that way. Like maybe, you know, they, don't have, they lose their assurance. Well, have they lost their salvation? No. Because you're secure if you believe. So some people worry about this themselves, but also some groups actually elevate the method of being saved, which is a human method. I'm talking about just a particular thing, like coming forward or something. They elevate that, or, or the whole sort of tone of everything is, supports that idea. So people get a wrong idea in their heads that they're not saved if they didn't go through that process. That's what I'm talking about. If you ever, if you ever had that feeling, that's not the issue, right? So do you believe? Do you love Christ? Have you been committed to him? Now these are all ways people can actually come to Christ. You can certainly come to Christ by coming down an aisle. You can come to Christ by saying a sinner's prayer on the back of a tract. You can, whatever. Those things are real ways that people do come to Jesus. Or it could be the long draw. <laughs> Thinking it through over a long period of time. But if you believe, you're saved. Now for some, a lack of assurance is caused by sin. And that becomes a difficulty as well. Maybe you blew it big time. Big time. Serious, horrible, embarrassing sin. A period of your life or some thing you couldn't shake and it took over your life for a while and those kinds of things. Whether, whether it became known to everybody or not, you know. And then you wonder if you're actually saved or not. And, and, and people in those sin situations, we've, many of us have been there, you, you really say, well, have I failed Christ so much? You know? How do you think Peter felt denying Jesus, right? That must have been so hard. Well, anyone who truly feels that they have failed Christ, if you truly believe and are worried that you have failed Christ, you're probably in a pretty good place. Because a real sinner that's not saved wouldn't care if they had failed Christ or not. That's really the truth. They, they, would, they would just say, oh well, and go on with their sin. But if you're grieved about it, and it's upset you that maybe I failed Christ, well then, you're probably a Christian. Now look, there might be all kinds of permutations about that, I don't understand, but I'm just saying, generally speaking, if you care about your sin, and you're grieving your sin, and you realize how horrible it is, there's forgiveness for you, and you're secure. Now, are there professing Christians that have a false assurance? They just sin all they want and they just say, hey, I'm saved. I went down the aisle when I was six and I'm saved. Yeah, there's people like that too. But I'm not talking to those people. I'm talking to you if you've blown it and you feel like there's no hope for you. Well, there's certainly hope for you because it's not our perfection that saves us. It's Christ's perfection that saves us. And you've got every opportunity to, to trust in him and believe and, and put your life in his hands. But people that just love sin and don't care what Christ, if they failed Christ or not, those people are lost people. But you do care. And so he looks at you as, as a person that he wants to bring to him and solve these problems and get this over with because you are beloved of him. And you do have the spirit in you. It's the spirit that lets you feel that maybe I failed Christ. That's the, that's the Holy Spirit speaking. Not that you have lost your salvation, but that you feel the grief of it. 
And that's a good path to walk down. You know, people that don't care, they worship their appetites. They don't worship the Lord. People that are just going to sin freely and not even worry about what God thinks about it, those people, they've got to, they've got to come to Christ. So, failure. Failure and a lack of victory over sin might make a true believer lose their assurance. But a true believer is always secure. Always secure. He doesn't let you go. I think it's really helpful here. I, you know, I read these words by John Newton. You know who John Newton was? He was a very wicked, blasphemous sailor. Any sailors in here? You guys know how sailors are. <laughs> And he actually um, came to the point where he ran his own slave ship. So part of the, the dark passage, across, I mean, you've got to be a bad person to do that for a living. And he came to Christ. And this transformation started in him. And it took time, like it does for all of us, but he came to the Lord, he grew in the Lord, he became a godly man. He became a pastor, he became a famous author, he wrote a couple of songs like Amazing Grace. <laughs> that was his song. He was a wise man. You read his stuff. He's just wisdom. Just wisdom. Godly. Godly believer. Anyway, he wrote this. He said, Jesus, to whom I have been led to commit myself, has engaged to save me absolutely from first to last. He has, not, he has promised not only that he will not depart from me, but that he will put, keep, and maintain his fear in my heart so that I shall never finally depart from him. And if he does not do this for me, I have no security against my turning apostate. That means leaving the faith. For I am so weak, inconsistent, and sinful. I am so encompassed with deadly snares from the world and I am so liable to such assaults from the subtlety, the vigilance, and the power of Satan that unless I am kept by the power of God, I am sure I cannot endure until the end. I do believe that the Lord will keep me while I walk humbly and obediently before him, but were this all, it would be a cold comfort. For I am prone to wander and I need a shepherd whose watchful eye and compassionate heart and boundless mercy will pity, pardon, and restore my backslidings. In short, I must sit down in despair if I did not believe that he who has begun a good work in me will carry it to completion. He's quoting Philippians 1.6 if you didn't notice. Where Paul wrote, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now what did he write there? I am confident of this very thing, that I am going to keep perfecting myself until the day of Christ. No, that's not what he said. He said, I'm confident of this very thing, that God who began a good work in you, he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And when Newton said he was kept by the power of God, those aren't. His words, those are Peter's words. I think we read it a week or two ago. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled 
and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Boy, just cling to that and hold that verse. There's another scripture I think we should never ignore. There's so many places we could go, but 2 Timothy 2.11, there's this little poem or, or a song that was common among the Christians and Paul quotes it in 2 Timothy uh, 2.11. He says, it's a trustworthy statement and then he gives this little poem. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That was a common saying amongst believers. If you deny him, you're not a Christian. The people that left and went and joined the cult in 1 John, they weren't Christians. If you blow it, he still loves you. <laughs> and, he's, and you're still his child. Repent because he's ready and easy to, ready to, eager to forgive you. He's eager to forgive you. There's a lot of other scriptures that strongly affirm that a believer is safe because you're kept by God's power. John chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, we read it earlier in the service today. Many verses affirm our security. We're secure in Christ. Nothing can take that away. And they give us reason to have assurance. We should have assurance of our salvation. One of the most powerful comes from Jesus himself. John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus said, My sheep, my sheep, those that belong to me, listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Our kind Lord, he says a lot right there. Just go back and read through that carefully. <laughs> I know my sheep. He gives them eternal life. It's, it's, it's a gift. It's not something we earn. His sheep will never perish. Never. They have eternal life. No one can change this fact that they have eternal life. The Father's grip cannot be broken. God holds us. And you know, at the end of John's gospel, just like at the end of the letter, he tells why he wrote the gospel. John chapter 20, verse 31, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the gospel was written to the whole world, and it was so that people would come to faith in Christ and find eternal life. John's great desire is that they would read the gospel of John and believe in Jesus. That's what he wrote it for. Now, that's his purpose. Now, his purpose in this letter is stated at the end too in verse 13. And, but here he's not writing to the world, he's writing to believers. And his great desire for believers is that they would know how secure they are in Christ. That's his desire. I want you to know how secure you are. Now like I said, some people struggle with assurance. And if that's you, don't let that struggle shake your foundation. 
We all struggle with something. That might be your particular struggle, struggling with whether I'm saved or not. Some people just wrestle with that. It just plagues them. It's something Satan puts in your head. But remember, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. So it doesn't matter how you feel. It matters who you belong to. Take the scriptures we've talked about this morning. Learn them well. Stick them on the dashboard of your car. Don't read them while you're driving recklessly. <laughs> but memorize them. Put them in your heart. Rest your soul. Rest your soul in the promises of God. And I can assure you, you're not worse than the greatest saints that have ever lived. That's why I read what John Newton said. That's how he felt. The deeper we go with God, the more sinful we seem. Because we become aware of our sin more. But God desires that awareness to humble you, not make you doubt his love for you. So as we learn that we, as we get exposed more to the truth and how holy God is, we see our sin more. Remember Isaiah? Isaiah felt perfectly fine until he saw God. Then he felt like nothing, right? Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, uh, I'm a sinful man. Your awareness of sin should magnify God's love for you. Not that you would think that he's angry with you. It should magnify his love to you because he was gracious to you. There's no reason to sin. Sin is awful. Sin often has very unpleasant consequences. Don't sin. But when you are aware of your sin as sin, then you can repent with assurance that God is forgiving because he is gracious. And he sees you not as someone to be condemned, but he sees you as an errant child. If, you, if you're a parent, or if you've ever been a parent of an errant child, you know how God feels. What can I do to bring that person back? And, and when God does that, he means back into a relationship because that person is secure. If, if you're his child, you're secure. But if you've been sinning, he'll do something to bring you back. We'll talk more about that in the future, but he does do that kind of thing. Jesus died for a wretch like you, you know. He did it willingly and gladly. In fact, the Bible says he went to the cross for the joy set before him. That's actually the words that's used. What joy was that? What, what's the joy set before Jesus? Well, this cross thing's over. No, that's not it. <laughs> the joy was bringing all these people back to the Father in a relationship with the Father. That was the joy and he'll keep you until the day you're glorified. And on that day, you'll never sin again. So rest in that. Jesus saves and he keeps his own. And nothing can change it. That's your rock. That's your rock to stand on. When your emotions are all over the place, you stand firm on that. Doesn't matter how you feel. Just trust him. Okay, let's pray. Lord, you are more than patient with us, more than forgiving. You extend your omnipotent power to keep us. You send your spirit to abide in us, to correct us, to remind us of your holiness and your great mercy. In your son is eternal life. And for that, we are literally eternally grateful. This we pray in the precious name of our great Savior Jesus. Amen.